Welcome to the IVF Journey with Dr. Michael Chapman, the podcast for couples who struggle with infertility and want to fulfill their dreams of becoming parents. In this podcast, you'll learn actionable strategies to deal with infertility from Dr. Michael Chapman, or Prof as he's affectionately known. Prof is the co-founder of IVF Australia and is a leading Australian infertility specialist who has helped over 3,000 couples realise their dreams of becoming parents. To access previous episodes packed with ideas, solutions and tips that actually work, head over to Dr Chapman's IVF podcast on iTunes. You can also ask questions by contacting Dr. Chapman's rooms on 1800 111 483 or by emailing him michael.chapman at ivf.com.au. That first cry of a baby born after the long journey of IVF remains one of the most beautiful experiences in the world. As an obstetrician and an IVF specialist, I've had the privilege of experiencing this over many thousands of times in my long career, but I still remain moved by each baby's first cry. It signifies the end of a long journey and the beginning of a new life. This is Professor Michael Chapman, co-founder of IVF Australia and host of the IVF Journey podcast. Thanks for tuning in. To access all the previous episodes, head over to my website, www.theivfjourney.com and select IVF Journey Podcast from the navigation menu. You'll also be able to find the various services that we provide at IVF Australia. So today we'll talk about intracytoplasmic sperm injection. That sounds pretty fancy, otherwise known as ICSI. Interesting story around its naming. Two groups in 1991 in Europe were working on this concept of injecting a single sperm into the egg. A group in Belgium and a group in Holland. And the first person to get a pregnancy was the Belgian guy. He's actually an Italian working in Belgium. And they called it ICSI. The group in Holland actually were going to call it something else, which was DISCO direct insemination of sperm into the cytoplasm of the oocyte. So we might have been calling it DISCO if they'd got the first pregnancy, but now Palermo got it, and um, it's called ICSI. So what is ICSI? ICSI is where the scientists, under the microscope, examine the sperm sample and look for the best-looking sperm. The tall, dark, handsome one in the corner that's swimming like Ian Thorpe. So they're picking their most active and, from a shape point of view, the best-looking sperm. They then creep up on that swimming sperm and with the little tube that they're going to draw it up in, they hit it on the back of the head. And what that does is makes it immotile because what we don't want is a motile sperm inside the egg because it breaks down all the structures inside. So you've got to immobilize the swimming sperm. So having knocked it out to some extent, the scientist picks up that individual sperm and then, again, after the microscope, using a system a bit like a video game with two joysticks, 
directs that sperm in a very fine tube, a pipette, through the wall of the egg to deposit the sperm within the cytoplasm of the oocyte. It's different from nature in that the normal situation with fertilization, the head and the sperm detach as it goes through the wall. The enzymes in the wall of the egg break down the structure of the sperm and the tail remains outside the egg and it's only the head of the sperm which carries all the genetic material that actually gets inside the egg. With the ICSI technique, we're putting the whole sperm in. That did worry us in terms of the extra material that normally isn't in an egg was being put inside the egg. Those concerns, however, have not turned out to be important. So that's what ICSI involves. It's the, the picking up of an individual sperm and injecting it into the oocyte, into the egg. When do we use ICSI? Well, it was originally developed for men with very low sperm counts. And indeed, in the early 90s, when I uh, was doing IVF, if we got men with very low sperm counts, we really used to say, sorry, you're going to need to have donor sperm. You really needed two or three million sperm at least to give a chance with IVF. So men with very low sperm counts suddenly were able to have their own genetic babies because of ICSI. Even with higher counts of sperm, fertilisation rates are often a little bit lower, so the number of eggs that will actually take on a sperm and allow it in, if the count is not great, is quite a problem. So that the sperm numbers, anything that's below normal, is now considered to be an indication to do ICSI to avoid the possibility of failed fertilization. One of the hardest conversations I have with my infertility patients is where we've gone through an IVF cycle of all the drugs and collecting the eggs and we come to the time of fertilization and checking the fertilization the next day to discover that none of the eggs are fertilized. None of the eggs have allowed a sperm inside their cytoplasm. And this is usually related to the sperm, but to actually break that news to the patient obviously is quite traumatic. And I get asked, you know, why didn't you do ICSI? And that issue of why didn't you do ICSI is on all our minds when we are organising whether to do natural IVF or whether to move on to do ICSI. Because we'd hate to be in a situation of confronting failed fertilisation. In standard IVF, that happens with a normal sperm count, about 1 in 200 cases. So it's not very common if there is a normal semen analysis. The less the sperm number, the higher that chance is. And so that's why we tend to do ICSI at any opportunity when the sperm is not 100%. There are other situations where we use ICSI. I personally tend to use it in, in older women because what certainly our uh, research has shown is that the eggshell, the zona pellucida, is much thicker in older women and therefore failed fertilisation is an increased possibility. The evidence that it works or not in older women is debatable compared with natural IVF. Uh, but I just feel more comfortable that if we get failed fertilisation, we've done everything possible to achieve a pregnancy.
There's another group of patients that I tend to use ICSI with, and that's the group of patients with unexplained infertility where we've tried intrauterine insemination in the hope of getting a pregnancy, but have not succeeded. And I always have a concern that the reason it hasn't succeeded, there is an issue between the sperm and the egg. They look at each other and they don't want to be there, even though the sperm count is normal. And there is a little bit of data which supports my thoughts in that in failed intrauterine insemination that go on to IVF, one in 50 will have failed fertilization. So significantly higher than the one in 200 in, in a similar situation with normal sperm. So I think it is worthwhile because we know that we're getting sperm and egg fertilized. Now in Australia, our ICSI rates are starting to drop, in, in, interestingly enough, only by one or two percentage points. But it's been around the 60% mark for the last 10 years. But 60%, some people say, is too much. Because male infertility is about 40%, so what's the other 20% for? Why are we doing it? And is it excessive? As I mentioned earlier in this talk, I can justify it on two or three other grounds. The other one that I haven't mentioned is when you actually do IVF and no fertilisation occurs for no good reason. So the next time you will do ICSI. The other countries around the world range quite substantially in the, their use of ICSI from around about 40% through to 100% in some countries. This is the case in some of the Middle Eastern countries where I'm sure the obstetrician or gynaecologist, sorry, the infertility specialist, hates to look a patient in the eye when they've spent a lot of money and time and effort and have not got fertilisation to occur. They hate that confrontation, so they do ICSI. So is there any problem doing ICSI? Well, there is debate. Certainly ICSI in male fertility problems is the only way forward, so they are certainly justifiable. And the pregnancy rates in that group are slightly lower than in men with normal sperm undergoing natural IVF. So ICSI in that scenario where we know we've got poorer sperm does not produce the same pregnancy rates as IVF. If you move on and look at women with unexplained infertility where there is a normal sperm count and you still use ICSI, the pregnancy rates are all but the same. Some studies have shown a slight decrease of one or two percentage points, but the vast majority of studies suggest in unexplained infertility, ICSI or not ICSI produce similar rates of pregnancy. There is a small chance of damaging the egg because you're sticking a needle into the eggshell and cracking the eggshell might be a problem. It's very uncommon, probably less than one in a hundred eggs inseminated with ICSI has that issue. Damaging the internal structures of the egg is a possibility and that may explain the slightly lower fertilization rates. Some of our work uh, using polarized light microscopy uh, shows that about 10 to 15 percent of the internal structures in the egg are not where we think they are. And so using 
normal light microscopy, it may be that we're sticking needles into the, the chromosome material, the spindle. That could do harm to the eggs and, and probably does explain a slightly reduced fertilisation rate. One of my colleagues in Japan has now moved to using that polarised light system to do all his ICSI, and he claims that he's improved his pregnancy and certainly his fertilisation rates using that technology as well as ICSI. So it is more labour-intensive. Scientists take probably an extra half hour for every egg collection to actually undertake the ICSI process. So that's why there's an extra charge, but usually when you are having ICSI done in most clinics. But overall, ICSI is a safe procedure. If you go to Dr. Google, you may, however, find commentary saying that ICSI has increased congenital abnormality rates. And I think that's true. But that increase in abnormality rates is related to the fact that we're putting abnormal sperm in situations where pregnancy would never have occurred before. And what we're talking about is an increase from the baseline of about 15 to 2% of major abnormalities, rising to 3 to 4%. So it's still very uncommon. So I'm very comfortable using ICSI in appropriate circumstances. I think we are becoming slightly more cautious, and we certainly don't believe it, it should be a universal method of fertilising eggs. And don't forget that you can access all the previous episodes by going to our website www.theivfjourney.com and select IVF Journey Podcast from the navigation menu. Thank you for listening to the IVF Journey with Dr. Michael Chapman, the podcast which helps couples negotiate their way through the IVF journey all the way to parenthood. You can also ask questions by contacting Dr. Chapman's rooms on 1800 111 483 or by emailing him michael.chapman at ivf.com.au. 